0: It's good to be with you. I'm Dave Mitchell and look forward to a great uh, time together leading into communion as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. I love uh, this uh, theme of Palm Sunday this day. I want to take you back uh, a number of years. I found this just a couple of days ago. This fellow by the name of A.N. Wilson. Uh, Before we get in the text, I want you to hear from him. He was uh, a leading atheist over there in England. Um, he had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. He wrote books, books that described how Jesus was a failed messianic prophet. That's what he would do. He did everything he could to undermine who Christ is. And then he had this tremendous turnaround. And you know what the day was that he had this turnaround? It was Palm Sunday. He actually went to a church service on Palm Sunday. And God spoke into his life in an amazing way. So much so, the following Saturday, he wrote a a blog, if you will, that was posted in the Daily Mail of London newspaper fame. And it was the Saturday before Easter that he had this posted. And what he did in that blog was to share the difference that God has made in his life. And this is what we want for people. This is what I want for my life. Lee Let me read some of the stuff. It's a little bit lengthy, and uh, I'm not giving you nearly all of it. It was a, a lot of good stuff. But let me just pick a few of the pieces of what he wrote as to the change that happened in his life on Palm Sunday. It says, When I took part in the procession last Sunday, that Palm Sunday, as this is posted on Saturday in the uh, Daily Mail, and heard the gospel being chanted, I assented to it with complete simplicity. My own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. Why did I return to it? Partially because it is no more than confidence that I have gained with age. And there is something for that. Rather than being cowed by them, I relish the notion that by asserting a belief in the risen Christ, I am defying all the liberal, clever clogs on the block. And there was some self satisfaction to that. He continues, but there is more to it than that. My belief has come about in large measure because of the w- lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not the saints, but friends and relations who have lived, faced death. In the light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Materialist atheism that he was a proponent for for like 30 years. Materialist atheism says, we are just a collection of chemicals. It is no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism or poetry if we are simply animated pieces of meat. The resurrection, which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined, is the ultimate key to who we are. But an even stronger argument is the way that Christian faith transforms individual lives. The lives of the men and the women with whom you mingle on a daily basis. The man, the woman, the child next to you in church tomorrow morning as he projected that Easter Sunday morning. I love those words. I love that heart where God spoke into his life in a way that was transformational. Not just through an intellectual argument where if I can out-argue you and I can make you shut up because I have a better argument than you, that somehow I can convince you that you're wrong and I'm right and so therefore I win and you lose. That's not what happened. What happens is that this man, Wilson, this atheist, began to look at people who followed Jesus, not the famous, not the saints, but friends and family, where transformation had occurred. And he said, there's something attractive about what God's doing in your life. And now I renounce my atheism and give assent to the resurrection of Christ that He's still in the business of changing lives that's what we want. That's the impact that Palm Sunday should have. And that's the Sunday that he had that conversion experience. And I want to read from the text of Jesus entering into that city, Jerusalem. And we're going to hear four ways that it should impact us in our plans and our praise and our pain and then in our peace. Those are the things that we want to take away from this great passage in Luke chapter 19, I want to read the text. You're welcome to read along with me. In your own Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the chair rack in front of you. I encourage you to take that and read through it. This is the Sunday. It's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to read from Luke's account of the story of Jesus on the week that he was to be crucified, entering into the city of Jerusalem. And I want to show you a little map as we get into some of these uh, little places that we're going to see on the Temple Mount. Luke nineteen, twenty-eight says this. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage in Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. And the map you can see, Bethany, that's probably the location that it was in those days. That's about a mile and a half to Jerusalem. So it's a reasonable walk that these men. We're about to move towards. And from Bethany to Bethpage, where they're going to pick up this donkey that he's going to talk about here in a moment. He says, Go into the village ahead of you. That's Bethpage. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Luke doesn't include the palm branches, but others do, of the other gospel writers. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, and they quote from Psalm 118, which is that great, uh, sort of that messianic psalm of the Feast of Tabernacles as the Jewish people would worship with that annually. And they would shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.'" Because they said, "'They're praising you as king.'" You're not king. And he says, "'Answered, I tell you, "'If these become silent, "'the stones will cry out.'" Even nature recognizes who Christ is. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, "'If you had known this day, "'even you, the things which make for peace, "'but now they have been hidden from your eyes.'" For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He leaves it on a very down note. Let me take us through. There are four things that I think Palm Sunday should impact in my life and your life. And the first that I observe from this passage is that we need to trust in the plans of Jesus. That Jesus has plans. Now, early on in this text, Jesus unfolds the package that I need a cult. So he sends his disciples up from Bethlehem to Bethpage, and they get the colt. It's a colt that's tied up. It's a colt that's never been ridden before, that according to numbers means it's pure. It's never been used. But it also means it's a colt that's never been ridden before. And if you've ever ridden a colt that's never been ridden before, you're probably in for a whole lot of trouble unless you're God. And so he gets on this colt, and he rides this colt in. And just as the man had said that this man is going to ask you, and this is your answer, it all played out according to the plans of Jesus. Because Jesus had plans to come into the city. He wanted to present himself as king. He wanted to declare that this is a new kingdom that I am establishing. If you accept me, I will become your king. I will become your Lord. The people come into the city, and he says... And they say to him that we reject you, we crucify you. So that later that week he is crucified, he is buried, and he rises again. But he has a plan. And it's symbolized in a very small, sort of a micro picture of this securing of the cult and all the arrangements of that cult. And Luke makes a big deal, as do the other writers, that this is a significant part of it. Now, King David, when he had his son Solomon to be commissioned to be king, had Solomon riding on a mule as well. So it would be characteristic of a king entering the city. And Psalm 118 is characteristic of a king leading his troops into a, conquering a city. And so the, this is all playing together, part of this plan. And here is the thing that I want us to have as a takeaway in terms of our application if I can trust in the plans of God according to Psalm, according to Psalm 118 and according to uh, Luke chapter 19 and many other passages, then I need to because not always do his plans make sense. Well, I'm his disciples in a very simple way. I'm thinking to myself, I got to go get a cult. You've told me what to say, what the answer should be. It's tied up. It's never been written. Okay. I got all the details. I'll go get the cult and I'll bring it back to you. And I, I guess you're going to write in. And it just seems like sort of a, a very simplistic request and design and yet it's God executing his plan for his son Jesus to enter the city to be the crucified Savior for you and me and there's a lot about that that just doesn't make any sense to me here is Isaiah 55 8 and 9 my thoughts are not your thoughts nor your ways my ways declares the Lord for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The plans of Jesus that I'm supposed to trust in, they don't always make sense. For the people that were honoring Christ coming into the city, it didn't make sense to them. They had palm branches. They had coats. They were given the red carpet treatment. It didn't make sense to them. And there are a lot of things that God does in our lives today, and it just doesn't add up. Notice that same week, few days later, Jesus is in the upper room. He's washing his disciples' feet. That includes Judas, the betrayer. So great is God's love for us. And then he poured out water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, Jesus did, to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, uh, you do not wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said to him, and here's this key phrase that, that is, should echo in our hearts and our minds constantly when God does things that don't make any sense. Jesus says to him, and he says it to us, What I do, you do not realize now but you will understand hereafter. That's a great phrase. There is so much that God does now that I do not realize what He's doing, but later He'll suddenly bring it into focus. There is so much about the plans of Christ that He asks me to trust in that simply do not make sense, that I can't see clearly what He's doing, and yet He says, trust me, And I'll bring it into focus. Now let me illustrate. As you walked in the uh, lobby, did you notice the light, the sort of this uh, light chandelier of these lights that are hanging down from the pallet on the ceiling that uh, is, I'm sure, secured in case an earthquake came? Did you notice the lights? Some did and some didn't. Well, let me show you these lights. Here are the lights. They look like a bunch of lights. And first time I saw those lights, in fact, a number of times I'd walk by those lights and I would say, well, that's nice, a bunch of lights hanging down from the ceiling. I just hope I don't hit my head on one of them. And uh, now we have to walk around them. And so that's how shallow I am. Because I see these lights as just a bunch of random lights that are hanging there. But in point of fact, there is a design. And simply because I can't see the design doesn't mean there's no design. It's my failure to see what is already existing. Let me show you. As you look at those lights and you get in the right spot, it actually comes into focus. And you see the name Jesus. So much of life looks like random, scattered events circumstances, cancer, broken marriage, children that won't turn out the way I hoped, jobs, relationships, and they just look like random, chaotic, confusing, unplanned, unscripted circumstances that I can't trust God with. And the problem is Often because I haven't been brought to a place, a perspective, a focus where I can actually see Jesus in the midst of it. And I didn't see those, I didn't see Jesus there until Tim Nellis took me aside and lectured me, <laughs> shamed me. No, he didn't shame me. He said, stand right here. And as soon as I stood right where you can see that, it was like, wow, a light went on. And then he held up his cell phone. That's where you can see it the best. And I looked at it through his cell phone and said, Wow, Jesus is there. I didn't see that. And you know what a lot of us need? When life looks like a bunch of random circumstances that have no coordination and no perspective and and just seem to be out of control, you need someone to come alongside. So I know it doesn't make sense to you right now. But let me come alongside and help you begin to have focus. Perspective that what seems random is actually under God's mighty hand. And though you can't see Jesus now, I want to walk with you until you do. And you see that He is unfolding a beautiful, sovereignly designed, even poetic work in your life. And that if you trust the Lord, He will get you where you really want to go. Jesus, Palm Sunday, has a plan. Most people don't see it. But in the course of time, it becomes focused to us as the greatest gift of eternal life and forgiveness of our sins that is on display. And when you see Jesus for who He really is, you realize, wow, what a gift. Thank you. Not only are sometimes those plans Seemingly out of control until he gives me a perspective, but they're controlled by God. They're under God's sovereign rule. One of the reasons why Jesus asked for the cult is because prophecy said that that would occur. It was 500 years earlier, by Zechariah, in Zechariah 9.9, that he prophesied, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah, the great prophet, 520 years before Jesus ever was born. Prophesied, the king will come. He will ride a donkey. Look for him on a donkey. Five hundred years before, Matthew twenty-one, off he uh, points out that that was a prophecy fulfilled in the uh, Palm Sunday presentation of Jesus. And what I love about that is that when I look at the display of randomness that seems like there is no design, all of it's under God's control. All of this was being manipulated by an almighty God. And simply because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Let me give you another illustration. I invited Larry Dunn to come up here. Larry is one of our missionaries here at Calvary Church. He and his wife, Kathy, they serve in... Yes. They serve in Ireland, and we're so thankful for them. Larry and Kathy did a great job about a week or so ago uh, We had a breakfast over here in the gymnasium, and they shared their story. I wish everybody could hear the whole story between the two of you. It's just powerful. But there was one little snapshot that really caught my eye as I was thinking about this. Uh, Many years ago, Larry was a fisherman of fish, and uh, fishing off the Ireland coast had an accident and lost his arm Mm -hmm. in that fishing accident. But uh, as tragic as that may have seemed at the time, at least it would have felt that way to me, God has still used that in
1: an amazing way. Share a little bit about that. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of times that the Lord has used this arm. At that particular time, yes, there was a lot of confusion. Um, It it just didn't seem to make sense. I was just starting my business, and uh, I lost my arm. And uh, it, it really made no sense to anyone at that particular time. But as time went on, as time went on, I began to see how the Lord was using The loss of my arm for his glory and for his purpose. Some of the work that I do over in Ireland, I do some door to door work and go from house to house sharing the gospel with people and generally when I do that I wear a prosthetic arm and I have a hook at the end. It's usually in the pocket, in case it scares the life out of people (laughs) you know. But I, I remember going up to one particular door and I knocked on it and a lady came out and she wasn't very happy. She just came out and as I shared with her about God and and the gospel and all. Or she said, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a God who would take the chi- my, my little child's eye and give her cancer. And it, have to be, it had to be removed, she said. Now she has, to, she has to wear a glass eye. And she's five years old in school. And she's getting fun made of uh, in, in the school from, from a five-year-old boys. And she's coming home every day and she's crying and crying. She, she just wants to be a child, she said. She can't be. She feels so different. So different. Why would God do that? And with that, I just said to the lady, you know what? Sometimes I feel different as well. As I pulled the hook out of the pocket and I showed her the prosthesis. And the mother was absolutely amazed. And she called her little daughter in and she says, Mary, Mary, come here. There's a man here and, and he's a little bit different as well. And little Mary came in and she was very sad and she just came in and, and looked at me and and she saw the arm. She saw that there was somebody different and it made a difference in her life. And she, I just showed her the hook and she, she started playing around with it and I, I, I twisted it. I even took it off and I put it into her little hand and she was smiling, especially when she looked at her big brother. She started to run after him with the hook, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and she was having great fun, but it took her mind off it. She came back on and put the hook back onto my prosthetic arm. But I'll never forget what the mother said to me. She says, you don't know what you have done. You don't know what you have done. Now I didn't do anything, only allowed the Lord to use what I had, what wrong with me. And I just can thank God now that he can use and allow all things, and especially this, for his glory and for his purpose. That little girl, I got more joy out of that than anything else because she was so joyful as a result of that. But it made a difference, and I thank God for that. All right, that's great. Thank you,
0: Larry. Beautiful. There are countless stories. Many of you have stories as well. Trusting in the plans of Jesus, even when they don't make sense, but they're all under God's sovereign design. And at some point... They'll come into focus and begin to make sense. It's a beautiful part of Palm Sunday. The second part of Palm Sunday is this. Authentic worship and praise of Jesus Christ. As Christ comes in, we see them throw on the palm branches, their coats... They're excited, they're, they're thrilled. They're quoting Psalm 118, as I said, this great psalm that they would quote every year, the Feast of Tabernacles. They love this Psalm. They saw Jesus as the King coming in to save them. It says in verse 37: As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. At this point, you stop action, you say, Wow, revival's breaking out in Jerusalem. This is terrific. Finally, these people get it. They're coming. They're worshiping Jesus. They're honoring Him. The sad, tragic part of this is that it's not anything of what God wanted happening. It's not what God had designed. The people, as you examine their hearts, you begin to realize there were two motives behind their praising Jesus. Motive number one, We see Jesus as the king who's going to establish the Davidic kingdom. The King David kingdom that once was. They want the good old days when David was in charge. They want that kingdom back. The problem in those days is that the Roman rulers were having the power play over all of them. They were oppressing the Jewish people. And they had to acquiesce and pay taxes to the Roman government. They didn't want Roman oppression. And so they see in Jesus, we're going to praise you, Jesus, because you're coming in the name of the Lord. You're coming to establish your kingdom, as the other gospel accounts tell us. And so what these people said, I will praise you, Jesus, when you do for me what I want you to do for me. And when I get out of you what I want to get out of you, oh man, I'm all over praising you. But Jesus, if you're not doing what I want you to do, I'm not going to stand there. In fact, a few days later, you didn't do what I wanted you to do, so I'm out there shouting, crucify him. That's what's going on. And it was days later, these people showed their true colors. And they said, we'd rather have Barabbas, a murderer, than this Jesus that we thought would be our king. So they retract their praise, and it's discounted second thing that happened in this verse, the very last phrase, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. Why did they praise God joyfully with a loud voice? As Luke records the motive for all the miracles which they had seen. I love to praise God when He does what I want Him to do. When He does a miracle, heals, corrects, restores, answers prayers. I love those things. I say, God, we want to praise you for all the good things you do. But sadly, he doesn't always answer prayer the way I want him to. He doesn't always heal everybody I want him to. He doesn't always restore the marriages that I want him to. He doesn't always elect the political people that I want him to. And sometimes I look around the world and I say, God, that's not what I wanted. Am I supposed to worship and praise you even when I don't get what I want? Well, Jesus says, yeah you are. A second lesson that is a takeaway from Palm Sunday is that we need to be people of authentic praise. Not praising Jesus when I get what I want, but praising Jesus for who He is and the work He's going to complete in our lives. Some questions I ask myself. Do I come and praise Him and give thanks to Him and honor Him and tell people how good He is because He fulfills my desires? because it makes my life more comfortable, because He satisfies my temporal needs here in this world, and I don't really care about the eternal spiritual needs of my heart, like forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and a heart that is in communion with a holy God. Do I care about what's only important for me, or is my priority of praise all about what's important to Him? Even when my plans seem chaotic and out of control and I can't see the hand of God in what He's doing. I still praise Jesus. Third point. I need to have a point of understanding about the pain of Christ. When Jesus came into the city, after all the hoopla of praise and adoration and excitement and people joyfully shouting, it was a tremendous, I guess I said, a spirit of revival taking place. And then Jesus brings him on a downer. You notice that it says in verse 41, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he began to weep. Well, wait a second. We're praising you, Jesus. Why are you weeping? You shouldn't be weeping. You should be rejoicing. We, we finally love you because we think we're going to get what we want from you. But Jesus wept. Why did he weep? It goes on and says in verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw off a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You ever been to a party and everybody's telling you how great you are and they want to celebrate you and then you begin to say, you know what, you're all going to die a miserable death kind of takes the wind out of the party, doesn't it? Well, that's what Jesus is doing. They're saying, Jesus, we think you're great because all the miracles you did, you're going to bring a new kingdom in. And Jesus says, well, you know what? When I look at you, I just want to (laughs) cry. And why does he want to cry? Because he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem when they reject him. According to the historian Josephus, it was in 70 A.D., and this is an historical fact, maybe about 30 years after Jesus was crucified, that Jesus knew the destruction. As he says, there will not be one stone left upon another stone. Even your children will die. That Titus came in. The Roman ruler comes in, surrounds, literally surrounds Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And as a result of surrounding them, they couldn't get any food in. And Josephus writes this about that day. So all the hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty going out of the city. Then the famine widened its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled up with the famine. And fell down dead whatsoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it. And those that were hardy and well were deterred from doing it as well by the great multitude of those dead bodies. And by the uncertainty there was how soon they should die themselves. For many died as they were burying others, and many went to their coffins before that fatal hour was come. Yeah, that's a downer. Aren't we supposed to be up and praising Jesus? Well, Jesus saw to the future, He saw 30 years later, that these dear people that were praising Him and looking for a kingdom and miracles, power, Jesus, I just look and I see a destruction that's coming and it breaks my heart that you might be some of those that do not trust in Me and you fall to your own miserable death and destruction. Because judgment's going to come upon this city. And Titus then surrounded them. And the Roman soldiers outside that city, as the Jewish people were dying of starvation, the Roman soldiers purposefully brought all the food that they had, plenty of food, and they would stand before those Jerusalem walls and they would devour all their food to mock those who were dying of starvation. Starvation, Just Cruel. Some of the Jewish people would try to escape from the city, and one of the ways that they would escape, because they didn't have checkbooks and debit cards, they swallowed all their gold and their gold jewelry, and they would try to run out so they could later retrieve those things. But when they tried to, re, uh, to run out, the Roman soldiers would capture them and dissect them and remove the gold and the valuables inside their intestines. That, that is what Jesus was looking at. That is what Jesus was predicting. That is what Jesus is telling them is coming. Even as they surround Him with praise, in the heart of Christ, He saw nothing but brokenness and sad because it's a judgment coming. Now, how is that relevant for you and for me? Besides just making me feel a little bit dirty and depressed over the whole thing? is the reality There's a reality that Christ is coming and what pains the heart of Christ, frankly, it should pain me as well. As much as I just want to celebrate and just sort of pretend as though there is no reality of judgment someday, I just want to pretend like it's never going to happen and we're all going to live happily ever after and there is nothing that I need to fear into the future that God would do for those who reject Jesus Christ. As much as I just want to embrace that and say, yeah, that's that's who we are, I turn a blind eye to the reality of what Christ saw and that he still sees into the future, that you and I need to enter into that pain of Christ where I understand the broken heart of God that brings tears to his son Jesus over those who reject Jesus and pay the price of a judgment that is yet to come. That's not popular. We don't hear that a lot said because most of the world rejects it out of hand doesn't want to hear it. Most churches don't want to hear it. Most preachers don't want to preach it, but it's a reality. And as Christ looked over the city of Jerusalem even as they praised him, he wept over that reality. And so I want to invite us into the reality and appeal to a God who loves everyone, regardless of their culture, their religion, their gender, their sexual orientation. He loves every single person. And when Jesus died on that cross, He died to bring redemption and healing and restoration and reconciliation to be made right with God. And I want to pray for those people. The people that Jesus wept over, Lord, I want to weep over them. And I want to appeal to You that You would bring Your grace to them as You brought it to me. So I want to stop. And I want to invite you to pray for those that you know that the tears of Christ feel that pain of lostness and that perhaps this would be the week you would invite them to next Sunday as we do celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and what He can do for a person's life as He did for the atheist Wilson. He can do it for your friend. I want to just stop. In the quietness of this moment, Would you pray and pray for God's grace to touch lives who desperately need a loving Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, help us to have the heart of Christ. When he sees a world that is dying and lost without Jesus, Lord, help us to enter into that same loving reality that those that we work with this week, those that we live next door to, those that we share the gym with, those that are in the cubicle next to ours, those that are in the classroom in the seat next to mine. God, these are people that Jesus would weep over if they remain lost and without the hope of eternal life with you in heaven through the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross. Father, help us to enter into that pain of Christ and see them as you do, as people who desperately need you. And that, God, you would use us to invite them to interact with you. And Lord, realize, you change lives, I don't. But you can sure use our words and our lives to make a difference. So help us, Father, on that journey. As we thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. The last part, after the plans of Christ, we trust Him for that. The praise of Christ, it's authentic and real for real reasons, for who He is. The pain of Christ, we enter into that reality and we we care for those that God cares for. And we, we truly feel a pain towards the loss that they may have. And then finally, it's the peace. If you had known this day, Jesus said, even you, the things which make for peace, but they have been hidden from your eyes... Jesus is saying, if only you could see what makes for peace, that I come to provide peace into your heart. If only you could see those things, but they have been hidden from you. I want to make them real. I want to disclose them to you. Like walking around those lights, I want you to finally see what I have done. And what peace is that? Peace with people. Jesus, when He comes into our lives, He makes us to have more peaceful relationships. Believe it or not, that should be the truth. That should be a reality. That should be what we are known for, those of us who are followers of Jesus. As Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's way are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's a dramatic, dramatic change the way we live our lives because how we live in Christ, it makes even those that may hate us admire the peace that we offer them. It's a stunning turnaround of transformation. Romans 12 tells us, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. There should be a dramatic change when Jesus is in my life that I see the peace that He came to offer and part of that peace is that it begins to transform those horizontal relationships with spouses, with children, with parents, with employees, with bosses, with neighbors. It changes people's lives with classmates, professors, those we teach. It changes lives. We should be at more peace. Secondly, there's peace in my heart even when plans don't turn out the way I want them to. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. God wants my heart to have peace even when it looks like there is chaos surrounding me. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. He wants to hear from us when things are making me anxious, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Even if I don't get my answer as I want it to be, God says, I'll give you peace and there is a solution of what I bring to you. And then finally, there is the peace with God. Peace with others, peace in myself, peace with God. That's what Jesus came to offer. As Romans 5 tells us, Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace, which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. For you and me, we can have peace with the holy God through the Son Jesus, who died upon the cross. He took my place on the cross. He took my penalty for my sins. And He offers to me eternal life with God and peace with a God. So He takes my sin, puts it on Jesus takes God's holiness and puts it on me, and I don't deserve any of that. It's pure grace, as it says. It's pure grace. But God says, I want to bring peace between you and me, God says, to each of us. And as Jesus said, if only you could see the peace that I've come to offer you. And He offers it to us right now. Before we receive communion, would you pray with me? And I'll offer any who would like to have peace with God or maybe peaceful relationships and let that peace be yours as we continue to worship in communion. Father God, I pray pray to you, Father, for this moment, Lord, where the reality of Christ is now upon us, that sometimes plans don't make sense, sometimes my praise is not as it should be. But, Father, there is one thing that I want to claim right now. It's that peace with you. No shame, no guilt all forgiveness, pure grace. And if you're here right now and do not have peace with God where that salvation of saving work of Christ is given to you, eternal life with Him in heaven and changing your life today, that I invite you into that peace with God through Christ alone. Pray with me these words. God in heaven, I want to have peace in my life. And know that Jesus died for me. He was crucified on that cross for my sins. He took my place. So forgive me, God. And give me your holiness. That I can commune with you, a holy God. On this Palm Sunday, change my life. And give me your peace. As I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.